We are living through a time of global upheaval. When old systems of power and patterns of living are being called into question. We stand at the junction between civilizations, in the gap between empires falling and rising. The world groans at the dawn of an unknown future. Old certainties have shifted. The ground has given way. At just the right time, when you were dead in your sins, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the dawn of the new, from consumption, this is a fantastic deal, to creation, from me, you are already enough, to we, we are, this is, the, the new, new norm. norm. Now whenever there's a, a, a seismic shift in life, uh, on the other side of it we talk about things being like a new normal. And as a church, we're going through the back half of a book in the New Testament called the Book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. And it's a church made up of the nations, and it's a church made up of Jewish Christians. A lot of the Bible, the majority of the Bible, the Old Testament, is concerned with God's rescue plan for the world. But the way God rescues the world is he chooses one family group among, the, among all the nations in the world and promises that through this family group, a rescuer would come who would bring about blessing to the whole world. That family group in the Old Testament is the Jewish people. And in the church that, God, that Paul's writing to in Rome, there is a group of people who are Christians, but they're made up of the nations, and they're made up of the Jewish nation as well. And inevitably, when two different people groups come together, there's clashes and uncertainties, and there's a new normal trying to work out how to live together. But also, and more pressingly perhaps for the church, was the question, if God is faithful, how, why is it that it looks like he's rejected the Jewish people? Because if God has rejected the Jewish people, what hope do we have of him ever holding securely onto us? Is there hope for us? So the seismic shift that's taken place in the world isn't COVID-19. The seismic shift that's taken place in the world is the coming of Christ. That God became a man, died a death on a cross in our place for our sin, and that he rose to new life and ushered in the new age, the dawn of freedom and of forgiveness of sins and of hope for the world. And in the light of that seismic shift, we're now asking the question, how are we to live? How are we to live as Jewish Christians or as Christians from the nations of the world? How are we to live in the new normal after Christ? And that's what Paul's letters often do when he writes to churches. The first half of the letter He's addressing some problems perhaps or he's laying out for them the implications or the impact rather of the gospel, the beautiful news of Jesus. And then the second half of the letter is, and now this is who you are, so live like this. And so that's what we're doing. Last week we were looking at chapter 9 together. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 10 and next week chapter 11. And those three chapters together are concerned with this question about God's dealing with the Jewish nation and the nations of the world and answering that question, is God faithful? Can we trust him? Is there real security in him? And last week we saw from chapter 9 that God is sovereign, God is free, and God chooses people for salvation. God rescues people. 
He chose one nation out of all the nations of the world. And then even among those, that nation, he chose the individuals that he was going to bless and he was going to draw to himself. But we saw at the end of that chapter that Paul emphasized that it wasn't just God's choosing and God's freedom to do what he wants. There was also, at the end of what he said in chapter 9, an emphasis placed on the responsibility of us, mankind everywhere, to respond to the gospel message. And today we're going to be considering that in chapter 10, our response to the gospel message and our also our responsibility. So we're going to be reading together. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 10 and then we'll make some comments and see what God wants to say to us through his word this morning. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jewish nation, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking, right, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to the end of the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is God's word. So in that chapter, there's some, some ideas and some prophecies from the Old Testament that may have been quite confusing on first hearing of them, trying to follow Paul's thread of his argument. But listen to how the chapter ends. This is beautiful. Referring to this, this discussion of the Jewish nation. Are they saved? What's God's, what's God's attitude towards these people who killed Jesus and have rejected the Messiah? What, what's, what's God's character like? And he says, All day long I have held out my hands towards a disobedient and contrary people. At the 
outset, we can comment, listen to the heart and the personality of God. What is God like? All day long, I have held out my hands to a contrary and disobedient people. All day long. Many of us don't picture God like that. We picture God as a God who, if you don't get it right first time, you might get a second chance, but after that, you're through. But the Bible, the Apostle Paul, quoting the Old Testament, says God is like this, all day long I have held out my hands to people. He's talking specifically about the Jewish nation, but we can apply that because it's based on God's character to ourselves, to those that we know, that we love, that we care about, those that perhaps we might say once walked with God but have wandered away. What's God's heart like towards them? Is he wanting to smite them and strike them down? All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient people. God is a patient God. He's patient with you. He's patient with your children. He's patient with those that we love. Now, this past week, um, I was in a meeting, and at the end of the meeting, the person said that she came, she's not a member of this church, she said that she came to the church, and she was reading an occasion in the Old Testament where they were trying to build the temple, and to build the temple for the nation, people brought jewelry and they gave it to the, the priests. And the priests then turned it, melted it down and turned it into gold and built the temple out of it. And she said she felt God speak to her about that and told her to give us as a church uh, a family ring. She said, I don't know how much it is. I don't, know how, I don't want to get it valued because I'm worried it could be worth a lot. <laughs> but she said, I felt God tell me to give this ring to you as a people, to use for whatever God wants you to do as a church. It's um, built in the, it was made in the late, late 19th century. It has rubies and diamonds. It's very shiny. I know nothing about rings, nothing about jewelry, but I put that ring in my bag and it started to burn a hole in my bag as I became terrified that I would lose it. Um, and I think Amy, my wife, became even more terrified that I would lose it because she knows what, I, what I'm like with things. I have been entrusted for, by this person with something precious to be used for the purposes of God. Her obedience was beautiful. Her sacrifice was beautiful. My job is to turn this into some value that we can use as a people. It's not mine. It's precious I've been entrusted with something to pass on. The gospel is like that. If you're a Christian, you have become a Christian, you have been entrusted with the beautiful news of Jesus, and it is not for us. It is for the world. It is for others. A friend once told me um, that he was working in office and looked out the back and saw a postman emptying his post bag into the bin. Instead of delivering the letters, he was emptying the, the letters into a bin. Couldn't be bothered to deliver the letters, thought he'd go and have a coffee or a cigarette somewhere. So they reported him to the police. <laughs> you can get imprisoned for that, and certainly fined a lot, because it, is not your, it was not his mail, it was the Queen's, <laughs> Her Majesty's, and it was his job to deliver it, to pass it along. The gospel message is like that. The challenge we have, I think, is that people in our society, they think they know what Christianity is about. And so they think, they drive past churches every day, and they think, I don't need to go there, I'm familiar with Christianity. They've come to believe that it is something really that only offers moralizing to people and tells them how to live their lives. 
people don't know. And what's more is that fewer and fewer, fewer people know about what the gospel message, the beautiful news, the precious gift of Christianity, fewer and fewer people know even what that is. We assume that they do. A survey was conducted in 2015 that showed that one in three people in this country do not knowingly know another know a Christian. One in three people are not aware that they know another Christian or have ever known a Christian or someone who goes to church regularly. Verse 14 of what we read says, How can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? The gospel message is not something that can be guessed. You, you know, people can discern a lot about God from the world around us, that he exists, that he's powerful. A lot about God from our lives, that he's good. But they cannot guess the gospel. Listen to the Apostle Paul's heart at the very start of what we read together in verse 2. He says, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. There is a lot that can be communicated about Christianity by our lifestyles, by the way that we live, but not the gospel. People can discern something of God's character from the way that you live, his faithfulness, his goodness, but they cannot hear and discern the gospel. The message that leads to salvation cannot be guessed. There's a saying, isn't there? Preach the gospel on all occasions and when necessary, use words. I know what the saying is saying, but it's not true. The gospel is a message to be declared to the world. In 490 BC, um, Athens, the Greeks fought off the, po the Persians at Marathon, and the, I can't remember his name, someone here would, um, something Pleiades or something, anyway, the, the, that's not the point, um, the, the runner um, ran from the battle scene in Marathon to the city in Athens to do, announce the victory, and history, as history goes, as he announced it, his heart burst and he died. But he ran 26 miles, and so was born the marathon. He ran 26 miles to announce the victory. The gospel is a message of victory, that Jesus has defeated death and is alive, that Satan, sin, and death have been overthrown. Our greatest enemies have been defeated. It's a message of victory. In 1776, on July the 8th, the Liberty Bell in America was rung out as the Declaration of Independence was read out from the Capitol, as the Americans celebrated freedom from the English, as they celebrated freedom from us. They rang the bell and they celebrated it. I don't know when the crack appeared, but there's legends that it was rang so hard that a crack appeared in the bell. Freedom. The gospel is a message of freedom. In verse 15, of what we read, the Apostle Paul, again, quoting the Old Testament, he says, um, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And in quoting that, he's referring to the Old Testament time of exile, when the Jewish people were captured by the Persians and led off to slavery. Their time of alienation and separation came to an end, and messengers came to declare that the exile was over. The gospel is a message that announces to the world, alienation between us and God is over. Our exile from God is over. He has made a way for us to know him. 
and it is not something that can be guessed. We are living in a time that requires great courage, not just because of the virus, but because of the state of the church, where increasingly Christians are full of fear by the culture that we're in, fear about what we're allowed to say and not allowed to say. The gospel cannot be guessed. It needs Christians, men and women, full of courage to declare the victory, to announce the freedom, and to walk with the message that God can be known again. And in saying all that, I'm also stressing this point that Christianity is not primarily a technique. It is not therapy. And it is not a message of spiritual disciplines. It includes that following Jesus looks like something. We follow his way. We trust him with our lives. We obey him. But primarily, initially, Christianity is not a technique or a method. It is a message. It is news to be heralded, to be championed, to be shouted about the victory of God. Paul says at the start of what we read, my heart's desire is that they may be saved. And this theme of salvation occurs a lot in what we read together. The gospel is a message of salvation. It's a message of victory. It's a message of salvation. And salvation is something that every heart, every human being on the planet longs for, craves for, and is addicted for, addicted to in the way that we live. And the reason that human beings are so fixated on salvation is because we live in a world that is wild and unsafe. That's what salvation means, to become safe. Obviously, we've all become a lot more aware of the wildness of the world in the past year with COVID. But in the way that human beings, the way that we live, we learn to do, we've learned that we can sacrifice things in order to gain safety. That we seek salvation by sacrificing. So, in ancient times, if you had 10 grains of, 10 bags of grain, you would sacrifice a bag of grain to a tribal, a neighboring tribe, hoping that when, they, when you fall on hard times, they'll remember and they'll help you out. People have historically sacrificed their labor or sacrificed their wealth in order to get the salvation or protection of a wealthy landowner who can look after them. We sacrifice the extra donut in pursuit of our future figure, our future self that we believe will bring us salvation. And the, the rise in health and safety, the safetyism culture of the past few years, is really a rise in seeking salvation, a craving of safety at all times. Paul, however, is longing for salvation like every human being, but his longing in what we read is a longing not for his own, but for his families, his countrymen. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. He's longing for that from a position of safety. He's one who's saying, I'm safe, but my longing is that they would become safe, that they would be saved. Everyone has a vision, nevertheless, of what salvation is. As we said, for the past year, a vision of salvation looked like this. But every... But every um, as the vaccine gets rolled out, but every magazine on the shelf has its, on its own front covers its own personal vision of salvation and what salvation looks like. Salvation, you see, is not just outward safety from death and from the Vikings and coming to destroy us in the night. Salvation is also inward, and it's a salvation from our own inner angst and insecurities 
the wildness of the world is really a shadow and a picture of the wildness of our own hearts as we live in constant fear. And that is really a picture of the true reason for insecurity that we have, and that is our need for forgiveness before a holy God. There's a human race. We became estranged from God. And we exited the, the land of pleasant salvation that is God's presence. And we were sent into a world of thorns and thistles and death. And there we live as human beings in a state of anxiety and insecurity, needing salvation. And unless we deal with that, you know, those magazines will have a vision of temporary salvation. But unless we deal with the biggest need that we have for forgiveness before a holy God, Death is not the thing we have to fear. Hell is. As upon our death, we are cast out further from God's presence. See, the Bible's story is that we live in a world of insecurity and anxiety because we've become estranged from God. But if we stay in that state, death will just push us further away from God, away from his goodness and his presence. That's our need. That's why Paul's longing for this, for his family, for his countrymen, because he believes that. He knows that. He knows that that is our deepest need. Now, today is the last day of the premiership. Hurrah, some of you might say, <laughs> particularly if you're a City fan. Today's the last day of the premiership. And football is one of those things where, well, in football we see images of salvation that grips our nation every week. That's the clearest picture we have, I think, of what salvation looks like. The, the image and the vision of scoring a goal is a picture and a vision of salvation. The reason I say that is because it's hard to do. And the people who do it become champions. And the people who do it become saviors um, for others. We know how hard it is to earn salvation on our own, to get right with God, to get right with the world. And so when we see something presented in dramatic form on a pitch, it excites us and we think it is possible. Here's some examples of some saviors, uh, Lionel Messi, Harry Kane, and Marcus Rashford. And Marcus Rashford's interesting because he's the embodiment not just of a savior on the football pitch, but he's the image of saintliness because off the pitch, he's also known for his charity and his good deeds. And that's because, we see, when, when we make these people on the pitch our saviors and our heroes, we expect of them to have good moral life, lives as well. We forget that they're just playing a game. We expect them to be good ambassadors for, you know, conservative values and liberal um, freedoms and loving other people. We expect that of them because these are men and women who can score. They can, they've merited salvation. They've made us believe it's possible. So we expect more of them than just kicking a ball into the back of the net. And those who don't do it, those who fail to score on the pitch, become sinners. They're not saints. They're the opposite. And that's also true because the word sin, in its root form, really means to just miss. To miss the target. And so here's an example of some national sinners. Frank Lampard, uh, Chris Swaddle, uh, Gareth Southgate in Euro 96. Yes, they are all England players, I'm afraid. Missing penalties. Stuart Pearce. But go back to the last one. See, this is Stuart... No, the other one. 
There we go. Stuart Pearce missing a penalty in, when was it, Italia 90? Oh, heartbreak. He became a sinner in the eyes of the nation. No longer was he someone who could bring us salvation. He was the epitome of, the reason we despised him so much in that moment, and Gareth Southgate and others, is because these men are expected to present to us a vision of salvation. If they can do it, we can believe that we can do it. And if they can't, well, they're just like us. You don't believe me that this is sin and that's salvation? Look at the next image. This is his reaction when he did score a goal, a penalty in Euro 96. Next slide. There it is. Salvation in a face, if ever there was one. I'm safe. I have redeemed myself. Some of you are looking like you don't really believe me that football means that much. But I tell you why I go there. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we use that word end in two different ways. We say um, uh, the, the, end of the, the end of the line, the end of the road is one way of using that word. Or we say the, the end of my diet is looking slim. We use it to mean the goal. So we use it to mean the, the, the conclusion or we mean it to mean the goal. The goal of my destination is this. And wh- what Paul's doing when he uses it here is not to say that Jesus is getting rid of the law. Jesus lived the perfect life, therefore the law, behaving well, doesn't mean anything anymore. You don't need to do it. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He's not saying you don't need to live well anymore. What he is saying is that Christ is the goal of the law. He's the reason the law was there. And Christ is the one who scored it who fulfilled it, who put the ball in the back of the net and became our saviour for us. Christ is the goal of the law. We need to pass to Jesus and Jesus will score for us. He is our saviour. Salvation is found not by living perfectly yourself, but by trusting the one who did. You don't believe me again? Verse 3 says, um, for being ignorant of God's righteousness, they sought, uh, they sought to establish their own. Talking about the Jewish people, and they failed to submit to God's righteousness. John Calvin puts it like this. The first step to uh, obtaining God's righteousness, the first step towards becoming right with God, we might say, is to renounce your own. To stop thinking that you need to earn your way to God. It's not possible. And what Paul does in these two chapters, 9 and 10, is that he holds together, as we saw, God's choice in chapter 10, uh, in chapter 9. God's choice. He chooses you who are wayward. He chooses you. You cannot earn salvation. But then he holds it together here with chapter 10 by saying, but you have a responsibility to pass to Christ and he'll score. He is your saviour. He is the one who gives you righteousness. You cannot do it yourself. And that's why um, in verses 5 to 9, we had that strange um, kind of list of phrases with brackets where he's saying, that's why it says, do not save. I must ascend as if to bring Christ down or descend as if to bring Christ up. What Paul's saying is, you don't need to scale the heights or plumb the depths. Jesus has come to you. Salvation is near to you and to me. You do not need to earn it or impress him. You don't need to travel for thousands of miles on pilgrimage, prostrating yourself one length after another. You don't need to busy yourself with avoiding God because you think you can't impress him. He is near to you and he's calling to you. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. He's not saying two things. He's saying one thing, but he's using a parallel way of saying it. Being a Christian is putting Jesus as Lord of my life. It's believing and it's, it's declaring. It's putting my whole weight on him. In verse 11, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in the Lord. Call on the Lord. You'll be saved. Throw yourself on Jesus. That is the hope that we have. Now I mentioned at the start that this ring was handed to me as a, as a piece of precious jewelry to go and get valued and donate to the church. Well, there was something about it when the person gave it to me that I thought, the value in this ring and the value in what this person's doing is not really in its monetary cost and how much we get for it. You know, as soon as she handed it to me, my brain started going wild like a lot of ours would do. Like, how much is it worth? Two million pounds? Ten million pounds? Ten thousand? I don't know. I had a dream. I had a dream, as you do when you're obsessing about things. I dreamt that it was two pound forty-nine. And I thought, well, I don't think it's two pound forty-nine. I think I might get a bit more for it. But as she handed it to me, I thought to myself, the value is actually in this person's sacrifice and obedience in giving this, regardless of how much it's worth. You know, we're living in an age where for many people they've decided that Christianity hasn't got anything to offer. And when we share the news of Jesus' victory over the world, they kind of have this look on their face as if to say, okay, it's nice for you. They put it in the same box as they might do vegetarianism or veganism. It's, a, it's your lifestyle choice, it's not for me. Whereas we're saying, a victory's been won, freedom's on offer. Okay, lovely for you. I'm going to keep eating meat, if that's okay with you. Or I'm going to keep not going to church. They look at you strange. Because our world does not recognize value. It does not recognize, I mean, Jesus, as we saw last week, is a stumbling block to people. He's a rock of offense to people. But to those of us who are being saved... Paul says, look at him and you won't be put to shame. Well, I took the ring to get it valued. And I, I was right. There's not a huge amount of value. It was more than £2.49. There's not a huge amount of value in it. Nowhere near the 10 million I had in my head. The value here is in this person's obedience and sacrifice. And actually, whenever you encourage and in obedience and sacrifice, maybe sacrifice to your reputation, you know, I've seen a few videos recently where public intellectuals have outed themselves as Christians. That costs them a lot when they do that. You've out, you might out yourself among people and share the gospel with them, and it costs you. There is beauty in that. There is value in that. There is worth in that. And our world, just as it wouldn't recognize the value of this, won't recognize the value of what you share often. In the first century, they threw the Christians to the lions and mocked them for their belief in a crucified Messiah. In ours, we may feel as though we've been thrown to the wolves. <laughs> Courage is needed. We're facing a huge challenge. But we must not lose sight of the urgency of salvation. Neither must we lose sight of the wonder of salvation. Again, I'll read Paul's words. Two verses at the beginning and at the end. My heart's desire and prayer is that they may be saved. Is that your desire for your friends? I know you're longing for salvation. If you're a Christian, you are safe in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you're listening. You can become safe in Christ. He has one for you. 
all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And we're to be those with beautiful feet all day long, holding out our hands like our Father in heaven held out his hands to us, telling people, come to him. He offers you salvation. That is the, that is the beautiful news. That is the new normal that we're to live in, being those who live with the word of life and who offer the word of life to others. Let's pray.